Today we're going to look at the story of a man who indeed was willing to die for Jesus and who faced the persecution that is still going on today, but so far from our reality. We're going to look at the story of Stephen. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. We're going to work our way through chapters 6, 7, and a little bit of chapter 8 today, um, really studying just a portion of this area, and again, leaving room for personal study between Sundays here. We're going to begin with the calling of Stephen, the first point on the outline that's there for you on the bulletin insert that you received, and you can follow along and, and fill in the blanks there on the outline if you wish. I know I do better at remembering things if I don't just hear them, but also write them down. Acts chapter 6, we're going to read the first seven verses together to start out with. Acts 6, verses 1 through 7. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So the first church was having an issue. It was a growth issue. They were increasing in number rapidly. Last week we saw that the number of men had grown to 5,000. Well, the best estimates at this point have the size of the church at roughly 20,000 members. And so naturally a church that size is gonna have some challenges. Remember that this church did not simply hold services once a week on Sunday mornings. They met how often? Daily, every day. And remember that last Sunday we talked about their reality when it came to sharing with each other and supporting each other. There were many believers who needed help meeting their physical needs. So people were bringing money from things they had sold and making that money available for the meeting of the believers' needs. And that meant that resources needed to be managed and distributed. The disciples wanted to make sure that everyone was being cared for. Well, in a church of 20,000, that is not an easy thing to do. In this church community was a group referred to here as the Grecian Jews or the Hellenistic Jews. They were different from the Hebraic Jews. How? Well, the Hellenistic Jews were made up of Jews who were now scattered about the world outside of Jerusalem. They spoke Greek now, not Aramaic or Hebrew anymore. They were still loyal to Judaism, but also adopted some cultural practices from the Greeks. So they were different from the Hebraic Jews. And because of this, the Pharisees and many of the Hebraic Jews did not trust the Hellenistic Jews. They didn't like these people that they often considered to be second-class citizens. So there was certainly division. And some of that division and distrust may have carried over 
into the first church of Christ followers. When they chose to believe in Christ and join the church, many of these Hellenistic Jews stayed in Jerusalem and they needed to be cared for by the church. Well, it may have been that the Hebraic Jews in the church were intentionally leaving out the Hellenistic Jewish widows in the distribution of food. So the complaints of the Hellenistic Jews reached the disciples. They had a church problem to solve. And the statement that the disciples make here does not need to be taken as an insult to waiters and waitresses. They said it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Well, this was not an issue of the disciples just snubbing their noses at the ministry of distributing food to widows. The disciples had been doing that already along with every other responsibility in the church. So this problem brought to their attention the need to expand their leadership team. This wasn't working. Not everyone was being cared for. Well, what shall we do? And they did not look at this and say, well, we're definitely above waiting on tables now. Waiting on tables was a term that was used then to refer to the tables of money changers. And it is more likely here that the disciples were stating that it was time for them to delegate the task of managing the money in the church to somebody else. They didn't have to do everything themselves anymore. So they needed to choose someone to take up that role and there were qualifications that would have to be met in order to be suited for this role. They had to be men, it says. They had to be men who came from within the church. They had to be men who came from within the church and who were full of the Holy Spirit. They had to be men who came from within the church who were filled with the Holy Spirit and who were wise. So seven names were raised in that conversation. And this, many say, is where the idea of church deacons originated. These seven qualified men were prayed over and they were appointed to be leaders in the church. Stephen was one of them and he even got special mention in the list being described as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. These seven men took up their responsibilities and they carried them out day after day. The number of people joining the first church increased rapidly and incredibly. Even a large number of priests put their faith in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. It was a wonderful start for this thing that we're participating in right here this morning. The church was born and began to get organized. And then we arrive at the seizing of Stephen. The seizing of Stephen. Let's read verses 8 through 15 of chapter 6 together. This is what it says, what Luke wrote. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. 
Well, this brief passage tells us a lot about this man named Stephen that we're looking at today. Let's look at three different aspects of Stephen that are displayed for us right here. Um, First of all, we can see something of Stephen's character right here in this passage. Luke writes that Stephen was full of God's grace and power. Luke does not say that Stephen was aware of God's grace and power. He does not write that Stephen was impacted by God's grace and power. He does not write that Stephen was teaching about God's grace and power. Luke does not state that Stephen was fond of God's grace and power. Luke writes that Stephen was full of God's grace and power. Stephen was full of faith. He trusted God with everything. His family, his future, his needs, his perspective were not things Stephen worried about because he knew that God was sovereign and that all these things were really God's in the first place. So Stephen had faith in God. In fact, he was full of faith. Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had come to Stephen when he put his faith in Christ and accepted Jesus as the Messiah. But Stephen's experience went much further than just that point in his life. Daily, he was seeking the filling of the presence and power of God through his Holy Spirit. And because of that filling, Stephen had been doing great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Stephen was full of grace. When circumstances came at Stephen, none of them could control his reactions to the point where his character wound up contrary to the character of Jesus Christ. God's grace was sufficient for whatever Stephen faced. And whatever he faced, the challenge did not alter Stephen's character. Stephen was a man full of grace, and you'll see that so clearly in just a few minutes here. And this character quality may have had a lot to do with why Stephen was commissioned to lead the efforts in caring for the widows. Stephen was also full of power. The Holy Spirit had granted Stephen that balance that I long for. He was gracious, yet powerful. There were obviously some demonstrations of that power that surrounded Stephen. People could see that there was something incredible happening through this man. And this really put him on an even level with the apostles. Specific details aren't given by Luke, but it looks like he likely did perform miracles like healing the sick and casting out demons. The power was there and Stephen knew where it came from. Uh, John MacArthur, a well-known Bible scholar, stated that a man full of faith toward God and yielded to the Spirit's control will be gracious toward others and manifest great spiritual power. Words that describe this man called Stephen. Grace and power flow out of faith and obedience. And we can also see here that Stephen was a man of courage. He was attacked by groups from three different synagogues at the same time. Their origins are listed in our passage. They were members of the synagogue of the freedmen opposing Stephen. Now these were descendants of Jewish slaves who had been captured from Pompeii in 63 BC and had been taken to Rome. They had then later been granted their freedom and hence the name, the freedmen. They were also Cyrenians and Alexandrians from two major cities in North Africa. And there were Cilicians and Asians from two Roman provinces in Asia Minor. Now these groups debated Stephen about Jesus and they lost. They couldn't stand up to not just Stephen's wisdom, but the power of the Holy Spirit filling Stephen as well. And so they had to resort to recruiting false witnesses, to finding someone to lie about Stephen. And Stephen was dragged before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, to answer these false charges against him. 
And he courageously stood up to the opposition, in spite of being outnumbered and the fact that he was not on their level, level uh, in the religious realm. So finally in verse 15, we get to see Stephen's countenance. Stephen's countenance. Luke writes that all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, simply put, God himself answered the charges that were leveled against Stephen. God put his own glory on Stephen's face. And this had only ever happened to, to Moses before that. God honored Stephen and he allowed his glory to be revealed in Stephen's face. And, and here's God's power being demonstrated, but also God's grace. He's giving the Sanhedrin a very clear opportunity to see that he was in this. Yet sadly, even that kind of demonstration wouldn't get through to those whose hearts were hardened. In the next passage, we see the message of Stephen, the message of Stephen. Chapter seven, verses one through 53. Uh, we won't go into detail regarding Stephen's message, to, or Stephen's message to his opposition that day. I would encourage you to read this passage on your own and look up some further information on this, either on our website or in another place. Um, Stephen here defends the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And he does so in such an impactful way. He clearly understands who it is that he's speaking to. He quoted the Old Testament a lot in his message. He knew and explained why he believed what he believed. He answered the charges of blasphemy, and he even turned the charge around and put it right back on his accusers. He recited Israel's history, which was something that his accusers would definitely relate to. They were very proud of their history. He also let them know that they had rejected their Messiah. And this statement just built throughout this message. He included Joseph, Moses, and even God in the list of those whom they had rejected. And finally, he presented Jesus to them as their Messiah. Now, uh, please note something that is missing here when you go and read this account on your own. Um, there were no converts this time. There was no message of forgiveness and salvation through Jesus. They were not called by Stephen to repent. This was not gonna expand the church, not that day. They were confronted with the truth through Stephen, and that was it. And there were no repentant hearts among them at that time. In fact, just listen to how Stephen closed his message to them. Go to verse 51. Look at verses 51 to 53. Stephen says, You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels but have not obeyed it. And then we come to the stoning of Stephen. Chapter 7, verses 54 through verse 1 of chapter 8. This is what it says. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. 
At this they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there, giving approval to his death. Heaven and hell are once again on vivid display here in one short passage. The Greek text says that the Jews who were listening to Stephen were sawed in half by his words. But instead of being broken, they were furious. The truth had been spoken, but their hearts were too hard. They had heard Jesus' teaching and had seen his miracles. They had seen and heard the apostles. They had seen and heard Stephen. Still, they rejected the truth. Now, Stephen was such a strong contrast to their reaction. He was full of the Holy Spirit and could even see Jesus standing next to God. Who Stephen was in life even remained constant when he was faced with death. In the face of death, Stephen kept his eyes on heaven. And we have a hard time keeping our eyes on heaven even when things are going perfectly for us. And God opened Stephen's eyes to see the glory of God in the glorified Christ. You can almost imagine Jesus beckoning to Stephen to come home. Well, that reality pushed the Sanhedrin over the edge. They're so blind that they can't handle any of this. And, and yet another messenger dies. The group rushed in fury, it says, at Stephen. Um, the rushed description in the Greek is the same terminology that you, that's used to describe the demon-possessed pigs that rushed into the water to drown when Jesus delivered a possessed man in the books of Matthew and Mark. They were out of control. It took Stephen outside the city, just like happened to Jesus, and executed him for what they considered to be blasphemy. Standing there giving approval was a man named Saul who now enters our story. And we're going to learn a lot more about him as we go. This is a very significant turning point in our story. Do you think Stephen's execution had an impact on Saul? How could it not? How could it not? Some seed has to have been planted in Saul that day. Stephen understood that Jesus was indeed God, and so he gave up his spirit to Jesus. Stephen knew where he was going, and that perspective made it possible for Stephen to remain Stephen in spite of what he was facing. No begging or pleading for his life, no cries of terror. He knew he was going to be with Jesus. So he could still be gracious, even towards his murderers. Um, reality check for us right now. What does it take for you and me to stop being gracious to people? Sadly, not that much. Did you know that you and I can love and forgive this way? We have nothing to fear. Absolutely nothing to fear. 
crossover from earth to heaven for God's children is a glorious experience, not a scary one. A new day awaits. So right now, no one is a threat to us. We can love anyone and extend them grace no matter what they do to us. Luke then reminds us again in the beginning of chapter 8, verse 1, that Saul was there giving his approval to Stephen's death. And finally today we have the persecution that started with Stephen. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. says, On that day a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. This was the start of something that we'll look at next Sunday. A change took place in the church, but it was not a change that caught God off guard. It was all part of the plan. Persecution has played a significant role in the history of the church. I think it drives our enemy crazy when he creates persecution of Christ's followers, but like we heard in the story of this Ethiopian pastor this morning, it only results in the expansion and strengthening of God's kingdom. In the face of persecution, on the heels of the execution of Stephen, the gospel of Jesus Christ was about to go global, and it would never be stopped. I want to end the message today with a series of questions for me and for you. We've talked about the filling of the Holy Spirit. We've talked about the need for us to empty ourselves. That emptying creates opportunity for the filling of the Holy Spirit to take place. But there's something else that paves the way for this filling of God's presence and power and that something is obedience. Obedience Peter and John in last week's passage made the declaration that they had to obey God rather than men. Stephen in today's passage was given a message from God that he had to deliver even at the expense of his life and he obediently delivered it. So here's the general question that all the other ones are gonna stem from. Are you truly obedient to God, to Jesus Christ his son, to the Holy Spirit? I saw this acrostic the other day that I want to share with you. It's the word obey. The first letter is O, and O stands for occupied. Occupied. Being obedient comes with being occupied with the things of God's kingdom. It's much easier to submit to God's will when we're occupied with the things of his kingdom. Stephen was occupied with the duties of the kingdom. Are you? Second letter is B, and the B stands for the word believing. If we really do believe that God is who he is and that Jesus is his son and that the Holy Spirit dwells in us, won't obedience come that much more naturally to us? Stephen was described as a man full of faith. He believed. Is that how you could be described? The third letter is letter E. E stands for the word enduring. No matter what the opposition, as we endure it, we become increasingly obedient to the God who carries us through the opposition. Stephen endured the opposition of the Sanhedrin, a scarier bunch than you or I will ever face. So are you enduring the opposition in your life? Or are you just giving in to them? 
And the why is for yielded. This has to do with the total submission that's being asked of us to the guidance of God's Holy Spirit. A willingness to go where he asks us to go and do what he asks us to do. Stephen said yes to the Holy Spirit. Are you saying yes day after day? Jesus was obedient to death, even to death on a cross. Stephen was obedient to death, even to death by stoning. Do you love God enough to be obedient to him to the point of death, whatever that might look like? That, brothers and sisters, is what is being asked of us. That we die with Christ, with Stephen. And I want you to let God challenge you with that thought throughout this week. As the ushers and the worship team come now, let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you again this morning for your word, for how you spoke through Luke. He wrote what you said, created this account of all that he witnessed. I want to thank you for giving us those encouraging verses that we want to hear and those really challenging ones like these that make us question our own position, our own obedience, our own faith. Father, it's almost impossible for us to come to terms with the question of whether or not we would die for you. Because it's just not asked of many of us. But I do believe, God, that that's what you want to know from us. Jesus said that we're to lay down our lives, that we are, we are to lose our lives so that we can find it again. And God, if there is somebody in here today that's just not willing to do that, then will you speak to them very clearly right now? I believe that your son, Jesus Christ, is worth dying for. I believe that we aren't going to experience the filling of your spirit until we can honestly say that, yes, Lord, I would die for you. You're giving us eternity, a perfect eternity, pouring out your love on us every moment of every day, you're also asking us right now this little thing that we call life to lay it down for you. God, when you give us words to say, help us to be obedient to say them. When you give us a stand to take, help us to be obedient enough to take that stand. You remind us over and over again that your son died for us. 
Help us to be obedient enough to say right back to you, and I would die for you. Father, let Stephen's life affect us deeply so that we can live without fear knowing that Jesus is there at your right hand. God, transform us into the people that you want us to be. Give us the faith to give up our lives to to find your life for us. We desire to be obedient to you even to the point of death. Forgive us for where we have not been and transform us into the people who wouldn't hesitate to die for you. Thank you for all that you've done for us, for all the ways you care for us. We give back now in obedience and surrender. In Jesus' name, amen.